Welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Saki, welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk to you. Now, I'd like to start by asking people, um, in 30 seconds or less, can you tell us who you are, what you do, and why you're qualified to talk about what we're going to talk about? Well, I'm currently uh, the Deputy Vice Chancellor of Research at Macquarie University, where I have an administrative role, but I'm still involved in research in hobby time. But before that, um, for nine and a half years, I was the CEO and Managing Director of the Australian Wine Research Institute in Adelaide. And before that, I was the Founding Director of the Institute for Wine Biotechnology at Stellenbosch University in South Africa. And I've been working for most of my time uh, on yeast and yeast related to winemaking. Amazing. Uh, well, let's start with a Again, with an old um, old exam question of what contributions do yeast make to wine and how far can a winemaker control these? So the backbone of wine flavour and wine aroma comes from the grape variety. So whatever I say about yeast, that's secondary flavours. The backbone, the original primary flavours come from, from grapes. You can't make good wine from bad grapes, but you can make bad wine from good grapes if you don't uh, apply certain technologies and one of those technologies is uh, the conditions that you allow for either spontaneous fermentation by yeast that comes from um, the vineyard or from the winery environment or if you inoculate your your grape must with a specific strain or strains in order to achieve a certain outcome so that is under the control of a winemaker. So in a way, you can regard the viticulturist as the composer of what the symphony in your wine glass, and you can regard the winemaker as um, the conductor of that symphony. So in most cases, or many cases, it's the same person, but nevertheless, in other cases, it's not. So if you choose certain yeast, uh, you can um, enhance the flavor by bringing out more of the grape flavors or convert some of the flavors into, uh, from converted from involatile uh, compounds that you can't taste and smell to volatile compounds that you can actually taste and smell. These are not artificial flavors or added flavors these are just a mechanism to extract more flavor or aroma from what is already in the grape must and originate from the grapes so what are the major um flavor group compounds in the that the, the you find in in wine so let me answer that question by saying what is the main role of a yeast a yeast converts grape sugar which is glucose and fructose into ethanol, which is what we call alcohol, and uh, CO2, or uh, um, dioxide. So, in a way, um, <clears throat> that's a primary. You convert it from sugar 
into something that is alcoholic. However, with that, certain yeast also brings um, added flavors from esteric esters. So that would be a major group. Um, carbonyls, anything that you can smell and is the vinous character of a wine, that is what the yeast can bring. But some yeast are better than others. For example, to take a precursor compound, uh, that comes from the grapes that is involatile, so you can't smell it, uh, and convert it into a volatile compound. For example, turpids, if they come as bound, in their bound form from the grapes, you need certain enzymes that are released from yeast during grape must fermentation that will convert it into, um, into turpines that you can taste and smell. So those are the main compounds. Um, so apart from the highway that is sugar to alcohol, this, the secondary path is carbonyls, uh, esters, terpenes, and in some cases, thiols. I can give you more information if you're interested in the latter. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Let's 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 talk about thiols. And um, so, we, and we, I mean, which part of the the yeast cell does all this? Or is it complicated? <laughs> uh, it's just the, um, the, so it comes from the genetics of a specific strain. Uh, so all of them, most 99% of the yeast that carries through uh, in inoculate fermentations, carries through the fermentation is Saccharomyces cerevisiae, but they are different strains. They're the same species, but different strains. And their DNA or their gene or combination of genes are such that they produce certain enzymes. So it comes from the metabolic uh, interactions uh, within the yeast cell and that uh, if they release the enzymes externally, it can do certain things outside of the yeast cell. If it's compounds that are brought into the cell, some intracellular enzymes can then convert it into something else and that can be pumped out of the of the yeast cell so that eventually it makes up um, or contributes to the chemical profile of the end product. A good example of that is if you think about um, a grape variety such as a Sauvignon Blanc. Sauvignon Blanc uh, is popular um, in a large part of um, certain wine segments where it's a very fragrant wine. and the, the compounds that we, uh, we smell are thiols. Thiols are sulfur compounds, and it's a family of compounds. And they give, uh, let's say, a Marlboro or a uh, New Zealand Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc a very, very strong fragrant um, aroma. Uh, and, of course, in other parts of the, of the world as well. But it comes from the grapes grown in certain circumstances in certain terroir that would produce more of these. However, <clears throat> if you if you take those precursors, only a less than 20% of that is converted into something that a consumer can taste and smell. So if you have a yeast that releases more of that, more than that 20%, uh, because the precursors are there, you can release a lot more of those flavors. 
Now, Sauvignon Blanc is a grape variety and it's uh, regarded as the Eskimo of grape varieties. It, um, it, it requires a long, cool ripening season. So if you're in a hot climate area where you have heat spells and more and more that happens everywhere in the world from Europe to South America to Australia, everywhere that can happen in certain regions. You actually destroy um, those file precursors. So the more you destroy, the less you have there in order to convert. In a cool, long pool ripening season, you have a lot more of those building blocks for those uh, aromatic uh, fragrances that um, that is so typical of Sauvignon Blanc. If if you have yeast cells that can release more of the flavors, and some yeast cells can do even more, they, they don't only release them, they actually convert them in even more potent versions of those tiles. For example, a nanogram is like a teaspoon of concentrated flavor that you can dump into an Olympic-sized swimming pool, and that swimming pool will smell like passion fruit. It is that potent. So <clears throat> in order to test these things and to understand how it really works, uh, in the early 2000s, the compounds were identified by a group in Bordeaux. They were chemists. We uh, in Adelaide, in my previous role there, um, we wanted to understand, but how do we do that if, for example, during a, a very hot uh, vintage, how, how do we prevent the disappearance of, you know, the fragrances? So in order to do that, we uh, connected a few dots. Files <clears throat> are exactly the same compounds, which we didn't know at the time, that make certain people have a more, a, a stronger propensity to smell like sweat. So certain people have sweaty problems. And you've heard a few times when you have an overly fragrant Sauvignon Blanc, some of the connoisseurs will, regard, will refer that as, as sweaty. So what we looked for in certain deodorants that are more powerful than the odorants that most people buy to help people with a special sweat problem is a blocker of a certain lyase enzyme. So we thought, well, maybe what we need is a lyase in order to see is that the same compound that can be converted by this enzyme. So we created a model organism, a yeast cell that contains a lyase that they normally don't contain. So we added a, a certain gene from a bacterium in there, constructed it, have it as a, pre uh, as, a, as, a as a model organism to study, not for commercial purposes, of course, uh, to verify the hypothesis that these lyases that you try and stop with the odorants is what you need in order to release the precursor molecules from Sauvignon Blanc grapes in order to convert into these potent uh, passion fruit. Uh, and if it's overboard, it's sweaty um, uh, aroma compounds. So that's what we've 
So you demonstrate it that way. So after we've demonstrated this is the enzyme that if we can have a strain that has a stronger lyase, it will help us to make Sauvignon Blanc even during hot vintages because, you know, even if you have less precursor, you extract more uh, of that flavor. And this is exactly what we've shown. I think it was around 2008. So those are the sort of things that the yeast can can bring. It's not it's not foreign flavors or aromas, but it you, you enhance the ex extraction power during fermentation. So the yeast performs a normal alcoholic fermentation, but at the same time extract more flavors. And then we found another um, enzyme that can convert whatever you've extracted. So you take the precursor, get the volatile compound that you can smell, but if you convert it to something else, um, a related uh, chemical, then it's, it's a lot more powerful. So that's, uh, and we couldn't find any natural yeast that has both activities. So we found two strains, the one that can extract more and another natural strain that can do the conversion. So if we mix those two strains and inoculate uh, Sauvignon Blanc grape juice that come from a, a hot vintage, you can extract and preserve your flavor that you would have lost uh, before. So those are examples that um, a yeast can bring and help the winemaker also to mitigate whatever the season or the climate throw at them. I think it was about 2003 you wrote a paper on designer yeasts and uh, I know you've just written one on, on fun, uh, New Frontiers and yeast research. I mean, how much has it come on in the past 20 years? We can do a lot more now, Bob. Uh, <clears throat> so up to 2000, let me, let me just go back to uh, the basic science that we are applying here. Up to 2000, researchers had the ability to read the DNA code. So we could sequence genomes, you know, in, in the year 2000, 2001, um, they sequenced the human genome that took many, many years and $3 billion. Now we can sequence anybody's genome uh, within two hours for less than $800. So that's just the difference. So the technology has just increased enormously. But the major change came in 2001, uh, 2003, the first science was there that we are starting to gain the ability for researchers to, to actually write the DNA code. Not only to read the DNA code, what comes naturally, but actually to write it. So to synthesize the DNA. So in 2010, the Craig Venter Institute in uh, California came up and they took the two uh, smallest bacteria. This was not wine-related, of course. They sequenced, uh, let's call them A and B. So they were cousins, same, same genus, two different species. They sequenced the genome of both, so they knew exactly what the genomes are. They emptied B and they chemically handmade, synthesized, 
the genome of A in a test tube and put that into B, and B became A. So since March 2010, the, there is a living organism on this planet that reproduces that has no ancestor. A computer was the ancestor because we gained the, the, the ability to, to write the DNA code. And then following that, soon after that, technology was developed that we can edit DNA. So you can go back and either edit the DNA code of a natural DNA code, or you can actually um, edit what you've synthesized. So early, early in the teens, uh, we came together at nine laboratories across the world, um, in the UK, US, uh, led by the US, uh, Australia, China and Singapore. And we said, let's synthesize the 16 chromosomes of Saccharomyces cerevisiae, the workhorse yeast. We took a lab strain, not a wine strain, and we synthesized uh, the chromosomes. We've now synthesized uh, all of those chromosomes, but they're still in, in different cells. We haven't combined them in a single cell there. Because our, our approach was, if we replace one chromosome at a time with a man-made chromosome, which is, should be the same, we have to test whether that E-cell is as physiologically fit as the original one. Now, there's a lot of, it sounds simple, but it's, it's, a, it's complex, very complex. So since then, we, you know, we collaborate across the world and we have synthesized all of them. We are still sorting out uh, a few what we call bugs, you know, problems in the coding as we're synthesizing it or the way we, we build the synthetic chromosomes. Uh, sometimes it interferes the way we, we connect them. Uh, but I can say that all 16 are synthesized and we're now in the process of sorting the last few um, errors out. And next year we will probably combine them. We would have been finished by now if it wasn't for the pandemic because, it, you know, this is an international collaboration that we couldn't do the way we were able to do. And many people were locked out of their laboratories because, you know, um, of lockdowns in different cities and countries. But I think um, we're very close to have the first complex organism, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, with 16 man-made chromosomes. So that changes the game for what we can do. But in the meantime, we're not waiting for that outcome in order to start to apply for it. So <clears throat> uh, my former colleagues at uh, the Australian Wine Research Institute in Adelaide just published um, last month a paper, which is called the Pan-Genome New Chromosome. So in blunt terms, that is, if you take Saccharomyces cerevisiae and there are, let's say, 200 different strains of, of that species. Some of them are good for biofuel, some of them are good for baking, some of them are good for winemaking, some of them are good for brewing. 
some of them are come from you know different natural so if we we now know what is the code of the lab strain can we synthesize all of the missing genes the, the genes that the lab strain doesn't contain from a biofuel strain or from a wine strain if we can synthesize that and build a 17th new chromosome neo chromosome and put that into a he cell with the 16 chromosomes can we convert this lab strain into a strain that's good for biofuel for winemaking for brewing and that uh, was just um, you know that concept was done and we successfully did that so that now gives us the ability if we want to assemble any sort of uh, combination of genes that we think will enhance the capability of a wine yeast, we can do it now. And it, it, it's the material will all be Saccharomyces cerevisiae material. They will just come from different strains. So what I'm saying is up to the late 2000s, we were able to clone a gene, put that gene into um, a wine yeast and test the model the way we've tested the lyase gene for soil blunt production. Now we have the ability to synthesize whatever we want uh, in whatever combination we want uh, and we can keep it either purely yeast DNA or we can add foreign DNA. And that is um, what gives us the ability to build the models that we can test certain hypotheses that we couldn't do before. So how stable are the yeasts that now have an extra chromosome? Like they, are they they're viable organisms that, that live? That is a very intelligent question, Bob, um, <laughs> because that was a question. You know, in the beginning, we didn't know. So the question is, why does a yeast cell have 16 chromosomes? Why not 20? Why not one? So we, what we've also started to test, if we fuse some of the chromosomes, there is now a yeast cell that only the Saccharomyces train that contains two mega chromosomes instead of 16 because we fuse them back to front. So it's purely by over time during evolution that yeast somehow ended up with 16 chromosomes. There was no deliberate advantage to a yeast to have 16 chromosomes. So your question is, if we add an additional 17th chromosome, that strain is as stable as the parent strain. Now, in terms of commercial application, how far off do you think this is? Because I've started getting CRISPR adverts on my Facebook, like, as in, like pretty much anyone can buy it now, right? Uh, which I'm not sure that's the best idea in the world, but it is where it is. Um, I mean, how, how receptive do you think winemakers will be to, you know, GMOs and extra chromosomes and whatever? Look, I think a long way, just because we, we deal with a, a food product, we, de we deal with um, uh, a beverage, a fermented beverage that has long traditions and social 
cultural connotations. There are certain expectations. Uh, for example, we know that we can use GM, GM technology and GMOs to produce things that we inject in ourselves as medication. But as human beings, people are still worried if they put that into their mouths and swallow something that uh, is made from GMOs. So I think we're a long way uh, from uh, large-scale commercialization. This doesn't mean it cannot be done technologically. This means the acceptance of that as a consumer, the, the consumer acceptance of a product like that is still a, uh, a long way off. The, the main reason for that is not only the traditions and the socio-cultural um, connotations of, of wine, it's also, there's not the scarcity of wine. It's not a food product that we must have and we ran out of it now. Um, structurally, there's still an overproduction of wine on this planet, um, quite a large um, structural oversupply. Uh, and it goes up and down, but it's, you know, if we produce, let's say, close to 30 billion liters a year, the annual production of, of wine across the world, you'd probably um, say five, sometimes six, uh, of six billion liters are in surplus, where you either have to sell below cost or you have to convert that into uh, into petrol, into biofuel, and that that happens largely in Europe because of you know sometimes there's just a glut of wine. In some cases there is not. So if it's not the sc something scarcity, there's not a need to go and do something like that. There will be probably niche. Uh, segments of the market where they want certain flavors or better flavors or um, more health beneficial components in their wine. But I think that will be very, very small compared to the big, big market that's there. So I think we should always, the question is, you know, why do we build Formula One cars? Why do we race them? Why is all the big brand cars, Mercedes, Ferrari, why do they build Formula One cars? It's not to drive Formula One cars on the streets of London or the cities. It's actually to test the performance of those machines that help you design cars that you use in everyday life. And that's, so using genetic uh, genetics as a mechanism or DNA synthesis or GMOs in the lab in order to study and gain insights is very different from what you aim commercially. We tested things with the Sauvignon Blanc lyase. It was a, a fully blown GMO. We, we then were able to dissect and say this is how the metabolism works and this is what we actually have to look at. Then we went back to the natural yeast and say, can we find it? We probably will not get the same levels as we had 
with um, you know the GMO, but by by understanding what you're looking for, we were able to um, to combine natural strains in order to give us some level of enhancement of the sauvignon blanc flavor. So a big broad brush acceptance of GMOs in winemaking, I think, is a long way off. And I think if if it starts, it will start with the the grapes themselves. You know, if you breed grapevine um, and you use some of this technology in future to have disease resistance and you don't have to use chemicals to, you know, resist the pests and the diseases, that will be good for the environment and that will be a choice point then. Do you either want to use chemicals in your vineyards or do you make sure that your your vines are resistant to those things that you spray against? So those will be the choice points and I think that that will be the if there is going to be a change in acceptance, it will be it will start in the vineyard rather in in fermentation. Uh, now, one of the things you sort of mentioned that, that might be in the future is synthetic yeast communities. Um, can you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, just a little bit more about that and how yes. that would work. I think at the moment we're dealing with um, you either have spontaneous fermentation, so you just harvest your grapes and you hope for the best that you have enough good yeast uh, coming from the vineyard and from the winery environment and will carry the the fermentation through and if you know what you're doing in some cases you can achieve that and some um, you know very good brands are using that the other way is to inoculate and make sure that you know, it's going to go from here to there, uh, and you you don't risk uh, contamination by Brettanomyces, for example, or from any spoilage organism. So you, the, you want a quick, fast fermentation, because what happens then with a quick, fast fermentation? You take the oxygen out because you produce CO2 very quickly and you produce alcohol very quickly. Alcohol is actually an antimicrobial compound and only a few microorganisms can survive the levels that we find in wine. You know, if your, if your wine is 12% alcohol or 14% alcohol, it's only Saccharomyces cerevisiae and uh, Brettanomyces that can survive that. So the question is, so far, we've largely focused, not exclusively, but we largely focus on how can we make sure that we have a good spontaneous fermentation. You know, do you add more SO2, for example, so that you kill off the, the baddies and you, 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 you make the environment better for the, for the goodies that can carry the fermentation? Or do you, do you add a lot of good Yeast that can carry the fermentation. So what we're looking for in at the moment is, can we use these two concepts? What are those yeasts in a spontaneous fermentation that actually add value to the end, end product? And there are not many of them. You know, there are um, 
six, eight of them. I normally refer to them as the seven, the magnificent seven. So if we know that, why can't we um, use those seven communities as a community? But of course, we have to work out what are the ratios because some yeast will be quick in the beginning. Then you have the yeast that will take the middle phases and then you will have saccharomyces at the end. You, you don't want to inoculate the same level of saccharomyces in the beginning because it will quickly dominate everything. Then you end up with nothing. But if it's a stage uh, process where you actually use a community, but you, you use it in a very controlled way, then, and there are examples of some, or there's evidence that it will work, uh, not with seven, but with uh, combinations of two or three different species, where you can actually enhance your fermentation, uh, the quality of the end product, but also make sure that you don't run the risk of a slow fermentation, where your grape must and wine, or your fermenting wine is exposed to spoilage. So I am a big believer of we know what <coughs> what works naturally. Let's focus on the on those yeast species that contribute positively. Picia cluveri, for example, or um, Debrumyces um, bandri has a new name now. You know how how do we use these in combination? Torres Torilospora delbruchii. We now know if you use the Torilospora delbruchii in combination with Saccharomyces, but Saccharomyces inoculate at a lower level so that you have a lot of Torilospora, it actually forms a very good partnership in your fer fermenting juice. But I think we should expand that more so that we have a, a bigger community a bigger partnership in order to make sure that you have good fermentation that will go and ferment until dryness, but at the same time, you extract the good qualities that you want from the different teas. But it's more complex than what I say. For example, let's say you have seven, and number seven is Saccharomyces. This is the one that will carry the fermentation, but you will use that last or at the lowest inoculation level. Number one might produce an intermediate compound that feeds number two. And number two, and by that time, number one and two also use some of the nutrients. Number three can survive under the nutrient that is depleted by the first two, but also use the the metabolized produced by one and two either in combination or one after the other and can then thrive. So it's, it's uh, the community is not you take them and you inoculate them all at once or all at the same ratio. It's, it's, um, we have to test this scientifically. Who feeds what? What is the sequence of these strains that need to be inoculated. Some of them will be more al alcohol sensitive, and some some of them you can you know phase in at um, the middle stages of fermentation, and then at the end, um, Saccharomyces cerevisiae will carry it. 
Now, uh, you mentioned in a, another interview that uh, red wine making we know far less about than white and, and another. Is that is that is that the case in terms of yeast activity? Um, and why is that the case? Yes, um, white wine. The matrix of white wine. It's uh, easier to understand the chemical profile of that because there are no tannins and polyphenols in there. It's a clear juice. Uh, so we know a lot more about the aromas of white wines and grape, white grape varieties. In red wine, we know very little. We know about two things. For years, we've known that there is methoxyparacines uh, in, for example, Cabernet Sauvignon. So if you have a short, relatively cool vintage with a the grapes don't mature physiologically to, you know, they, they have to mature in terms of flavor production, not only in terms of sugar production. Uh, we know that it can give you a green flavor in certain car carbonase. Now, for some consumers, that's fine. Other consumers don't like the green flavors that they describe as tomato leaf or, you know, asparagus or any of the, the sort of green flavors. Um, that we knew. And the, in 2007, I think, uh, the Australian Wine Research Institute discovered the second one that we knew. And that was uh, the pepperiness in certain Shirazes. Now, Shiraz is a flagship variety of uh, of Australia. Uh, it, it's a great variety that just loves the terroir here, grows very well. Uh, uh, it's hard not to produce good Shiraz in Australia just because of, you know, all the natural factors that help with it. It's a little bit like Malbec in in Argentina, you know, the, the circumstances just suit that grape variety very well. Um, so what we've discovered, so we've done consumer testings uh, and so on. And <clears throat> in, a, in a simplified way, we found that you get spicy or spe peppery shiraz, or you get the more fruity, flavorsome shiraz. <clears throat> the market, the consumer market in several countries prefer the, you know, the sort of fruity Shiraz. But there is a smaller market segment that actually prefers the spicy Shiraz. And interestingly, the people that are interested in spicy Shiraz tended to pay more for their wines. <coughs> They were more interested in the wine and they preferred that. But at the time, we didn't know uh, what what makes a Shiraz that comes from the same variety, same, same clones, uh, why is this one producing peppery Shiraz and the other one not? So it's, it's a natural flavor compound of, it must be, of the grape variety. So we... We were working for three years on that. And one day, 
one of the junior colleagues in our team, and it was a very small team of three or four people, chemists, yeast people, and so on. Um, she asked, I wonder what makes peppercorn taste like pepper? So we said, oh, we should, you know, we should test that. So <clears throat> for a few weeks, we searched the literature and we found out that the oldest spice known to mankind, um, we don't know what makes peppercorn taste like pepper, whether it's black pepper or white pepper. So we started to work on peppercorn and we found a compound which is called rotundin, and it's a, it's a, it's a terpene um, kind of comment, a compound, and we found this is the compound. So first of all, it was a leap of faith. It could have been a combination of compounds, but we were lucky. It was one compound, a single compound, that makes peppercorn taste like pepper. So we, we tried our luck more by taste uh, by saying maybe that is the same compound that we find in grapes, in Shiraz grapes. It could have been different, right? And we were lucky because it was the same compound. So first of all, that was then the second compound in red wine that we understood a single compound that we can link to a single flavor. We don't know what why a Pinot Noir tastes like a Pinot Noir or a Cabernet tastes like a Cabernet. Or, we don't know any of those. But in, in white wine, we can say a Gewurztraminer, for example, we know exactly what compounds make it taste like a Gewurztraminer. But there's, in red wine, the matrix is just more complex because of the tannins and the polyphenols, uh, and we don't know um, what they are. So rotundin was a very important one. And interestingly, we then said, okay, what makes the grape produce, if it's the same clone that it's made from, why is certain vines producing more pepperiness and others don't at all? So we've, we tested everything. Is it the soil? Is it the temperature? Is it, is it what? You know, we even dug out vines from a certain vineyard with a certain soil type and another one, and we've put them in the same place and, you know, wait a year to see does that make a difference. To cut a long story short and lots and lots of experiments, it's not the soil. It's largely cool sea breezes that come in in the afternoon. So a coolness, or if you have more leaves that across that sort of hides the grape bunches, the physiology of those of those vines respond by producing this rotund. And it's a very stable compound. You don't have to convert it. Yeast has nothing to do with it. It's there or it's not there. So then we tested a lot of vineyards in, in Australia where the practical advice was then if you don't have a peppery vineyard, don't try and produce peppery Shiraz for a certain market because you want a, a bigger profit margin, because you don't have it. 
or somebody that produces a fruity shiraz from a peppery <laughs> vineyard, we can say, you know, if you if you leave a little bit more leaves to protect your, your grape bunches from sun and heat and let the cool sea breezes cool it off, you will be able to produce spicy shiraz that you can sell at a higher profit margin. So that was the practical outcome of, of that. Uh, and as far as I know, I haven't come across any other single compound that produces a specific flavor in red grapes or red wine. So you mentioned a while back you did a you made a yeast that gives off um, very strong flavors of raspberries, I think. Um, yeah. So, uh, so, so what that, compound is that? Is that an ester then, or is what? Yeah. Now that was uh, again uh, a Formula One test model. <laughs> uh, it was right in the beginning when we started to apply the synthetic biology technologies, CRISPR technology, and building, you know, synthesizing DNA from the start. In order to demonstrate the power of these new technologies that only came about in the previous decade, um, we said, can we make any grape uh, or wine from any grapes taste like raspberry? So we went and said, okay, let's dissect what is it, what makes a raspberry produce raspberry? And it's a single compound called ketone, but it's a very complex pathway to get to this raspberry ketone. So what we've done, we've synthesized the DNA that we copied from plants, from fungi. We put them together so that we rebuild the whole synthetic pathway in a wine yeast, this time not in a lab strain, but in a proper wine yeast and said, can we make wine from any grape variety that will make this wine taste like raspberries? If we can, we can demonstrate what this new technology can actually do. So the intention there was never to produce raspberry anything <laughs> commercially, but in order to, um, to convince ourselves and to conven convince um, people that are involved in uh, in research and in wine research that actually this technology is very powerful. So the practical implication of, of that is we, we are now looking for yeasts that have certain components of that pathway that we've now decoded. And if we find them in nature, we can then put them in combination and actually use that to inoculate our wines. So it will be a non-GMO uh, version of an attempt to um, to add the raspberry flavor. How, um, how straightforward is it now to get a compound and work backwards to find a pathway to it? <laughs> it's, it, 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 it's not straightforward. Especially if it's not a single compound, you know, you need a combination of chemical compounds in order to produce a flavor outcome. There are many things, and that's why we don't know what flavor compounds make a Pinot Noir taste like a Pinot Noir, because it's not a single compound. 
Otherwise, we would have found it by now. But if we do have a single compound that produces a very specific and measurable flavor, that's easier, much easier than a combination of things. Uh, but it's still tricky, and then you still have to figure out how do you build the DNA that's required for, um, you know, and then you have to insert it into uh, a strain and make sure that it doesn't make the, the yeast less um, competent in terms of fermentation performance. You, you know, you have to test every single step. So it's very tedious work, but very exciting work. And uh, I think in future, you know, in the next 20 to 30 years, we're going to see unbelievable breakthroughs just because of the, the insights that we are gaining. And by that, I'm not saying insights in order to produce things commercially with genetically modified or chemically synthesized DNA-carrying uh, yeast, but just because we understand more what we're looking for. Because if you tell me today, I have many millions of dollars of funds from a philanthropist who wants to understand how um, what what makes a Pinot Noir in their vineyard smell and taste like a Pinot Noir, which is distinct in the world. Nobody knows what to look for <laughs> because it's unknown. Um, you know, even if, you know, it's rare for a researcher to say, I don't know what to do with millions of dollars. However, if we apply them, you know, and we build these models that we can actually combine, uh, insight upon insight in order to, to understand the, the natural mechanisms in the grapes, of course, but also in the heat cell. And once we understand that, we know what to look for and we can answer lots more questions. I mean, today, compared to even the year 2000, it's, you know, only two decades ago. We know a lot more and we have a lot more powerful um, technologies. To go back to what I'm saying here, um, why the question is why could the world respond to a pandemic within a year with a vaccine? If you, if you look at the signs and the technologies that were developed, it dates back to the mid-1970s. At the time, people ask, and I, I was in conferences where people asked, why the heck are you doing this? You know, what's, it looks like blue sky research with, an, with, with no purpose. It was based on those technologies that, you know, we were gain, gaining, and when when we were in a crisis and the world was in a crisis, that technology that led to synthetic biology, that was used. That's what we injected ourselves with in order to, you know, combat um, the COVID pandemic. And it's exactly what we're doing here. That's, it's, it's, it's using what looks like blue sky 
no purposeful research, you know, helps us. Uh, I mean, when I taught my first classes back in the 1980s and 1990s, if I look back now, um, and what I can teach now in, in a classroom is vastly different, vastly different. And it will not stop here. You know, the <laughs> innovation is rel relentless. Uh, uh, and the future is coming. And the reason why I'm, 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 I'm writing a lot of papers is, you know, I'm at the stage of my career. I, I don't try and make a name for myself. I have white hair and I don't build a, a CV anymore. Uh, what I'm trying to do is make sure that people understand that so that nobody can say we, we never knew. We never knew what CRISPR can do for winemaking. Well, we know because we write that and I'm trying to write it as jargonless as possible, but still get it into peer reviewed journals so that other people can assess whether, you know, my thinking is, is appropriate or not. That's why I'm, I'm trying to do that. And I know it's, probably not as sexy in um, a discussion with consumers. If I talk to my friends about I'm building synthetic yeast, they think, what the heck, did he lose his marbles? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not a topic that um, people engage easily with around a barbecue fire. But it's important for us as if you care about winemaking and if you respect the traditions and you respect the rich history and the social cultural connotations, you know that um, the future, somebody once said the future is not an inheritance. It's an opportunity and an obligation. So what we need to do as scientists, you know, that's our job. We are paid to do this in order to, to go with innovation and understand more. Uh, but often we make the mistake in public conversations that people think you're doing it because you want to apply that thing commercially. No, we're building Formula One cars so that we can build better cars on the street. Because we are improving the performance, we are improving, improving fuel efficiency, everything on this side. Apart from the fact that it's fun to build those cars and to race them, and it's fun for me to, you know, to be involved in East where we do absolutely science fiction in the lab. But it's all to understand better what we can do in a, in a natural way. Amazing. So that's that's my approach and that's my philosophy. <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, listen, you've been been incredibly generous with your time. There's one in in the final thirty sec uh, thirty seconds we've got. I always ask people what they think the major causes of optimism are um, in the wine world today. I think you've just gone into a little bit, but I mean, what are you most optimistic about now? In one sentence, I think the best wine is yet to be made. <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough. Think about that line. You know, I've said it so many times and I've been criticized for it, but we just have to understand um, the, the requirement to keep innovation 
front and mind and keep innovating if, you know, this is part of your role. Um, and I've said previously, you know, the Stone Age didn't end because man ran out of stones. There were different ways of doing things. Um, just as we now have to go for renewable energy uh, things, you know, it's not because we ran out of coal or gas. It's there. But we know we have to move on and, and get a bit better things. And I'm saying this not as a criticism to the traditions and the, what has been done and has been done until today superbly. But if you don't believe that you can make a better wine than the previous vintages, there is no aspiration. And I think we need to keep that aspiration, the flame of aspiration, aspiration and ambition there. The best wine is yet to be made. Well, that's an amazing note to end on. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for your time. It's been, uh, been incredible. Thank you very much, Paul.